Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa in a Thanksgiving-themed message titled, A Thanksgiving Feast, where he speaks from Psalms chapter 103, verses 1 to 5. Have you heard the legend of the five kernels? If not, let me briefly share it with you. The legend concerns the pilgrims, the first English settlers of the Plymouth colony. Upon arriving in the United States of America, they experienced many difficulties. They were not prepared for the harsh weather, and their supplies did not last through the winter. People in that little group starved to death in that first year. If it weren't for the help they received from the Native Americans, they probably, in all possibility, would have all died. So in thanks to God for their first harvest and their new friends, the pilgrims invited the Native Americans to dinner, and together they shared a feast. The second winter, however, was also very difficult. Again, the pilgrims did not have enough food. In fact, there were times when each member of the colony was only allowed five kernels of corn to eat for an entire day. Yet the people had faith that God would take care of them no matter what, and they pulled through. Nobody died that second winter, and the following harvest was huge. There was so much corn that the pilgrims were able to help the Native Americans. They held a second Thanksgiving feast, again inviting the Native Americans to come. According to the legend, all sat down to a feast of venison, goats, hogs, numerous turkeys, vegetables, grapes, nuts, plums, puddings, and pies. But to remind everyone of the hard times they had endured and all they had to be thankful for, the pilgrims and their guests sat down to an empty plate. Then each person was given five kernels of corn. The five kernels of corn reminded the pilgrims of all they had suffered the previous winter and how much they had to be thankful for that second Thanksgiving day. It's rather interesting that the holiday of Thanksgiving celebrated in the United States was born in and and further nurtured during times of great adversity, struggle and difficulty. Our assumption is that times of challenge and adversity spawn ingratitude, while times of prosperity spawn gratitude. But sadly, that is not the case. In fact, the reverse can be true. You no doubt have heard of the animated television show, The Simpsons. In one episode, Bart Simpson was called upon to pray for a meal to which he promptly prayed, Dear God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. This is a chilling reminder that prosperity can breed ingratitude. Moses knew this. In Deuteronomy, he looks ahead to times of material prosperity for Israel, then sternly warns them not to forget God. He says, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this well. In other words, he warned them not to take credit for the things they were about to possess. Those things that they were about to enjoy. Moses knew that the human nature trends towards self-dependence, towards self-reliance, self-indulgence, and ultimately ingratitude. But our entitlement culture also breeds ingratitude. The entitlement culture asks, why should we be grateful for what we deserve and what we have a right to? I was owed this. Therefore, why would I say thank you? A heart of gratitude, however, is cultivated when an individual acknowledges that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 
In scripture, we discover that the psalmist was intent in cultivating a heart of gratitude. One psalm filled with expressions of praise and thanksgiving is Psalm 103. And we know from the superscription that David wrote these magnificent words. He may have written them late in his life when he could look back and speak from experience about the tender mercies of the Lord. Now, some people consider that this the greatest of all the Psalms. Spurgeon called it a Bible within itself and said it contains too much for a thousand pens to write. And others have called this David's hallelujah course. But in this Psalm, David talks to his own soul, reminding himself to bless the Lord and to forget not all his benefits. And in so doing, he is using a grammatical device where he is instructing his own soul to remember, specifically to remember what God has done. And this is important to a proper interpretation of this passage. Psalm 103 has three major divisions. In verse, verses 1 to 5, David renews God's mercies to him personally. In verses 6 to 18, he reviews God's mercies to the nation of Israel. And then in verses 19 to 22, David calls all created beings to praise the Lord. Looking at his life, counting his blessings instead of complaining about his burdens, it dawned upon David just how much God had done for him and his people. He realized how good God had been and how deserving he was of all these blessings. And so springing up from the depths of his heart and, and gushing out onto his parchment came, came this prayer of praise, this benediction expressing his gratitude toward the Lord. This morning, we're going to focus on the first section of this Psalm, verses one to five. And this is what David writes. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David begins by calling us to wholehearted, intentional praise of God. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Like David, we need to instruct our soul to praise God. In other words, we must think before we can think. We must ponder before we can praise. We must remember before we can rejoice. And when we take time to instruct our soul to think, to ponder and remember, ingratitude will be replaced with gratitude. So in light of that, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, here are five spiritual truths on which we can feast. Feast on God's forgiveness. David begins by reminding us that God forgives all your iniquity. Although he was a great king who experienced God's blessing as he gave leadership to the nation of Israel, David at times stepped out of fellowship with God to follow his own sinful desires. And the most notable incident was his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and his attempt to hide, to conceal, and to cover it up. But in spite of his sin, David experienced forgiveness and pardon from God. Psalm 32 is a psalm David wrote shortly after acknowledging his, his adulterous relationship. He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Therefore, it's not a surprise that in Psalm 103, David starts with this profound truth. 
Because this is a foundation for everything else. When Wycliffe Bible translator Bob Russell sought a word for forgiveness in the language of the Amakas of Eastern Peru, he discovered the unique way of asking one another for pardon, one another for forgiveness. In that culture, if an offender wants to be reconciled with someone he's offended, he says to him, speak to me. Russell learned that the Amakas are unreconciled, who are unreconciled, typically refuse to speak to each other. So when the offender asks the offended to speak, it's the equivalent of saying, show me we're friends again by being on speaking terms with me. The many biblical terms translated in English as forgive reflect a beautiful array of meanings to cancel debts, to lay aside or cast away sins, to spare, to cleanse, to rescue or to free from sin. Yet the Amaka expression strikingly translates what is the most important biblical meaning of God's forgiveness. Above all, God's forgiveness is reconciliation. The restoration of a friendship with him that was marred by sin. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our wickedness is an offense to God's holiness, and we aren't on speaking terms until the offense is forgiven. But Christ's sacrifice has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. Paul writes in Colossians, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The sins that came between God and us can be cast aside so that we can be friends again. All other meanings of the word forgiveness must be seen in the light of this one. As the various biblical terms imply, our debts indeed have been remitted. Our punishment has been averted. Our hearts have been cleansed and set free. Our lives have been spared. And all this with a single purpose in mind. That we may receive the greatest gift of all to be once again on speaking terms with our father in heaven. Like the prodigal son in Jesus parable. We're relieved to be swapping our smelly rags with a silken robe and our pig's pod for a fat calf beast. But what could possibly match the thrill of seeing our father, the one whose heart we broke with our sin, running toward us with arms wide open, welcoming us home again. And so feast on God's forgiveness, but also feast in God's wholeness. Verse three reads, who heals all your diseases. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, that has not been my experience. And you're thinking this way because you are suffering with arthritis or cancer or diabetes, a heart condition, macular degeneration, or some other debilitating disease, and you have not experienced healing. However, I don't think that this is primarily what the psalmist is referring to. Yes, I affirm that God can and that he does heal physically. And while healing is a sermon in itself, suffice it to say that God is a great physician who we can take all of our physical needs and petitions. He's made us, he saves us, and he has a power to heal us as well. But we also need to remember that any healing in this life is limited and temporary. 
Our ultimate healing will come when we will be raised and clothed with an immortal, immortal, uh, excuse me, with an imperishable, immortal and incorruptible body. But physical healing, as I mentioned, is not the kind spoken of here. If we do, if, if we are to do justice to the interpretation of this, of this passage, we must understand it in this proper grammatical context. Remember, David is speaking to his soul. He is reminding himself of all the benefits that he has received from God. And he is telling his soul that God heals it of all its diseases, sin being chief among them. Does a soul have diseases? Indeed it does. You know it does. What are some of the diseases of the soul? Fear, doubt, greed, anxiety, worry, anger, insecurity, lust, hate, jealousy, pride, depression, and the list goes on and on and on. These diseases can all be traced back to our fallen nature and the effects of sin. Can we be freed from such vices? Of course we can. Scripture addresses each of these diseases and, he, and offers a remedy. For example, Paul writes to the Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but pray about everything. When that disease of anxiety floods into your soul, we are to pray. And Paul goes on to say that we are to praise. To the power of the Holy Spirit work in our heart, we can experience wholeness. God can bring permanent healing to the soul. No longer do we need to be enslaved to these diseases that spread through our soul like an uncontrollable cancer. In Psalm 147, verse 3, we read, in reference to God, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up the wounds. God brings healing to the diseases of our soul. But the psalmist also feasted on God's deliverance. He writes, who redeems your life from the pit. To redeem means to rescue from danger in time of trouble. And the pit refers to death itself. So David is literally saying that God is that, that it is God who saves or rescues or preserves your life from death. Elsewhere, he said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock. In earlier years, Cruel masters threw their slaves into deep holes where they sunk into that brackish mud. And often the holes were sealed shut and the slave was left there hungry, cold, and alone in the dark. The pit was truly a place of destruction and death. David probably wrote this psalm after a close brush with death. Perhaps he escaped death when God delivered him from his enemies. We know from scripture that David's enemies often pursued him like a hunter stalking a wild animal. But whatever the case, when David looked back over his life and saw how he had escaped destruction, he did not chalk it up to luck, to fate, or to chance. No, he gave God the praise for the deliverance. What does God save us from? How does he rescue us? I think we will look back one day and be amazed at how God saved us from imminent danger and destruction. We may never realize in, in this life that there were times when we came close to death, but God delivered us. Perhaps it was a car accident that we should not have walked away from. Perhaps it was an accident at work from which we were spared, or, or maybe it was a life-threatening disease caught early. Several years ago, during a New Year's Eve service, 
an individual from our church fellowship stood up and thanked God for the things he was spared from. He was acknowledging this very truth that there are times in life when we knowingly or unknowingly come close to death, but God spared us. In the believer's Bible commentary, the authors include this thought. Only when we get to heaven, will we realize how often we were protected by the personal intervention of our God from premature death. Every day, the Lord rescues us in a million ways that we don't see. His angels, the Bible tells us, encamp around us to deliver us from trouble. But when the time comes for us to die, we will die. However, we are immortal until our work on this earth is done. Until then, God is constantly behind the scenes, working to protect us from trouble, to clear the way ahead, and to give us strength for each new day. Therefore, David feasted on the Lord's deliverance. But he also feasted on God's steadfast love and mercy. He writes, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. This is a metaphor drawn from the common custom of wearing wreaths and garlands on festive occasions. In the Tower of London are the British crown jewels. The imperial state crown, the one Queen Elizabeth wears for state functions, is apparently covered with 3,733 jewels including 2,000 diamonds, 200 pearls, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, and 5 rubies. It is perhaps the most precious collection of stones and jewels on earth. King David knew something about crowns, but he declared that when we come to God, he crowns us with something far greater than diamonds and rubies. The crown we wear is woven with his steadfast love and his tender mercies. Steadfast love speaks of God's loyal love, his faithful love. Our world does not know much about loyal love. Relationships often dissolve over petty issues, and people are quick to walk away from relationships. We can be grateful that God does not fall out of love with us. We don't have to wake up in the morning and pray, God, do you still love me? He loves us with that steadfast love, with that loyal love, that unconditional love. But he also crowns us with mercy. Mercy can be defined as not getting what we deserve. We deserve death and separation from God because of our sins. We deserve to be punished by a holy and righteous God because of our transgressions. A God in his love and through Christ shows us mercy when we repent of our sin and believe on him. On him. In mercy, God does not give to us what we deserve. And remember this. Jesus Christ wore a crown of thorns so that we might wear a crown of steadfast love and tender mercies. Feast on this love. Feast on his mercies. But there's one more benefit David mentions in which we can feast, and it is God's sufficiency. This is how he put it. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. To be satisfied means to be so full that you need nothing else. It's what happens at the end of the Thanksgiving dinner when you simply cannot eat one more forkful of food. You've had more than you share of everything on the table. And even though there is more food on the table to eat, you're too full to enjoy anything else. But you and I know that kind of satisfaction eventually wears off and you have to eat again. What David speaks of here is a satisfaction deeper than anything the world can offer. It is finding our satisfaction in Jesus and in him alone. 
The emphasis is not on what we possess, but on what possesses us. And if God has us in his embrace, we have all that we need. God brings satisfaction to the lives of his children in ways the world cannot match. The way the things of the world can never truly and completely satisfy. And the Beatitudes, Jesus promised, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you're not satisfied in life, then perhaps you're hungering for the wrong things. Too many people hunger for power or for position, prestige, applause, pleasures. These things will never satisfy. Solomon, who pursued all of these things, wrote who, and who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, calls them vanity of vanities. He says it's like chasing after the wind. They simply don't satisfy the deep longings of the heart. Or in words be said, there is no satisfaction in this world, but we have satisfaction in Christ, who is a bread of life, and the good shepherd who leads us into green pastures. God says, I want to satisfy you, not with gold, but with good, not with that which glitters today and is gone tomorrow, but with that which is permanent, eternal, and ever increasing in value. In his sermon on Psalm 103, Clovis Tarpel says that on the west coast of England, there is a grave of a man who was much loved by all who knew him. When he died, these words were inscribed on his headstone. Here lies a man who was satisfied with Jesus. Clovis Chappell then adds this benediction. If that can be said of us, we have sufficient to make all of time and eternity one great Thanksgiving day. Some of you work or have worked in retail. One thing retailers do is take the annual inventory. And the purpose is to account for everything on the sales floor and the stock room. Retailers do this because they have to stop once in a while to see exactly what they have in stock. I think that's a fitting summary of Thanksgiving. And so in light of that, this time of year, we need to stop and ask ourselves some questions. Would you reflect upon these? Have I taken inventory of my life lately? Have you taken time to stop, to think? to reflect, to ponder? Have I stopped to count the blessings God has given me? Am I quick to complain and to forget God? Have I become bitter over the things I don't have while neglecting to thank God for the things I do have. Psalm 103 has helped us to take an inventory of our lives. And I pray that we will feast on these five benefits from the hand of God. We can bless the Lord when we remember how he has blessed us. As a praise team makes their way onto the platform to lead us in our final song, I'm going to ask you to stand. And would you say with me together the first two verses of Psalm 103? Let's stand together. And in unison with one voice and one heart, let us declare. Join with me in saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
and forget not all of his benefits. Let's say it one more time. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash TBC Swan River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church.